Amen. Lord, worthy is your name. You're worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to be honored. You're a great and awesome God. Lord, we pray right now as we go to your word that I just love the fact that something written 4,000 years ago applies to every life in this room tonight. Lord, I just ask you to take your word and minister to every single heart. Lord, transform our lives. Give us a deeper passion and love for you. We love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. May you be our teacher tonight. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Before we look at the text, uh, I mentioned on Sunday that kind of entered preliminary negotiations on a building. We should be hearing something back tomorrow, so be in prayer about that. We want God's will, amen? We don't want to be faithless nor foolish. We want to do exactly what God wants us to do. I'll tell you what, I, it's such a great thing when you know who's in control, you don't have to worry about anything, amen? So whatever God wants, that's what we're going to do. If He wants us to stay here for a couple more years, we'll do that. And if, you, and if He wants us to move a place, we'll have more parking and more places to be able to accommodate people. That would be great too. So whatever God's will. But keep it in prayer. Well, I titled the message tonight, Blessed are the Merciful. And as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, as we've seen the, the last two weeks especially, we, see that God, we saw that God cares about the details. God cares about every detail of your life. And I'm so glad that we serve a God who does care. A God who loves us enough that everything that about our lives is important to Him. He cares about you very deeply. He loves you. He knows every intimate detail. He knows your actions. He knows your thoughts. He knows what's best for you. And because of that, knowing what's best for you, he didn't just leave it a mystery for us. Too often we think of the Bible, I don't, maybe you do, but I hope not. Maybe when you leave here you won't. But the Bible, sometimes we think is an old antiquated book that's just a bunch of history lessons. But this is the B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? It truly is the, the owner's manual for life. And the same God who loves us so much handed us this, you know, manual for living. The owner's manual, right, for living a a Christian walk before him. And he said, here, don't guess, don't wonder, don't be lost, don't be discouraged. Just know I'm a faithful God, and here's how to walk before me. And here's how to have great joy in your life. And here's how to have a fruitful life. And here's how to impact the world around you. And so because he loves us, he gave us his word. And at the same time, what amazes me is how often we will be struggling in in our life, and yet we've never read the owner's manual. We don't read the book, we wonder why we're struggling, we wonder why our marriage is a mess, we wonder why we're struggling with our kids, we wonder why we're struggling in our workplace, but we don't open up God's Word. Can I encourage you? I'm speaking, I know I'm preaching to the choir, you guys are here on Wednesday night, I should save that for Sunday, right? But here's the thing, we need to be in God's Word every day, amen? Because God's Word will transform our lives. And so we see that the same is true for you and I today, that God had commanded the children of Israel to walk in obedience because it would bring glory to His name and it would bring blessings to the children of Israel. And the same is true of us. When we're obedient to God's Word, it brings glory to His name and blessings to our lives. As they're about to enter into the land of promise, this place of God's highest, this place with the land flowing of milk and honey, there was also going to be something else waiting for them. Giants in the land. Idols all around. Distractions. Same is true for you and I. As we walk in the center of God's will, as we seek Him with our whole heart, the enemy's going to be waiting. We also know that there's going to be distractions. There's going to be things that draw us away from the true and living God. So God's word is spoken to them here that they would not fall into the temptation of the flesh. 
and they'd be able to stand up when their faith was going to be challenged. He gave them clear instruction that if followed would keep them from temptation and would help them to defeat the enemies they would face. What we've seen in the past two weeks especially is that God is not only concerned about our relationship with Him, but our relationship with each other. God cares about how we treat each other. You know, we can have this great intimacy with God, but if we really have intimacy with God, it will show in the love we have one for another. And too often you see people saying, well, I'm so dedicated to God, I don't have time for people. Well, that's not biblical at all. God didn't call anybody to go sit up on a mountain somewhere and just be in tune with God alone. God called us to have an impact on this world. And these instructions are for them as they're about to go into this place where distractions are going to abound is to keep their eyes on the Lord, but also in how to live practically one with another. Last week we looked at true hearts of fellowship and having that relationship with each other. Things that can keep us from fellowship and things that can harm the body of Christ. The first thing we saw is that if we don't reproduce, healthy sheep will beget healthy sheep. If you're on fire for God, you're going to be impacting the world around you, period. If you, you know what, can I encourage you with something? If you've never led somebody to the Lord, you need to start praying and asking God to give you greater boldness and opportunities to share your faith. Because that's why we live, amen? That's why we breathe in and out. And the sad thing is, you look at, you know, surveys they do in Christian magazines, and, and 95% of Christians say they've never led anybody to the Lord in their entire lifetime. But the Lord said, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. That's for all of us, amen? Not just for the pastors and the evangelists, all of us. You know what? You're going to be able to minister to people I'll never meet. You're the only Jesus some people will ever see. Billy Graham's probably not going to show up in your neighborhood or your office this week. Amen? But you're going to be there every day. And so part of this preparation was, look, we need to be reproducing. If we're not, then it's going to impact the body of Christ. It's going to impact our own walk with the Lord. So a healthy walk will produce healthy offspring. Not being truly born from above caught up in the false religions. These were things that he warned them about that would harm the body and would keep them from fellowship. Last week we talked about hidden sin or undealt with sin. Does God know every sin in your life? You know what's amazing? He already knows what sins you're going to commit. Sins, if the Lord tarries, he knows what sins you're going to commit 20 years from now, what time they're going to happen and how it's going to, he already knows. And the awesome thing is he's already forgiven you. He's already paid the price for it. It's, it's been redeemed, Amen. You've been redeemed. But at the same time, we need not to allow sin in our life because, again, sin brings separation, as we saw last week, from the Father. One of the other things we've seen in the last couple weeks is we're not to be unequally yoked together with the world. Bad company does corrupt good morals, you guys, and there are no exceptions to that rule. You're not the exception. No missionary dating. Amen? You want the woman or the man God has for you and nothing less than that. Participating in the sinful behavior for the sake of the gospel. We talked about this last week. There were those, you know, he said, look, don't go in and be like the world and say you're doing that for God. Don't bring the, the money from prostituting and bring it to the temple and say, I did it all for the Lord. It was in, the week, in last week's text. And we should not do that either. We should not be compromising in our walk saying we're doing it for the sake of the gospel. Well, I go out drinking with my buddies because I just want to be able to relate to them. You know what? Relate to them the fact that you don't need to be drunk. You can be high on Jesus Christ. Amen? You can be filled with the Spirit of the living God. Don't compromise in order to draw people to the Lord. Live set apart for God and you will draw people to the Lord. Amen? So be in the world but not of the world. Don't compromise to try to reach out to them. And on the positive, thing, there was, there were, on the positive side, there were things they were called to do. 
They were to honor the Lord. They were to represent the Lord. They were to love one another. They were to provide a place of refuge for foreigners. Once they went into the land of promise, there was to be a place where people could come in and feel welcomed and loved. Is that a great example for us or not? It was supposed to be a foreigner comes in, someone who's not of the children of Israel. If they come in seeking to know the true and living God, you will welcome them in. If they're running away from a, a taskmaster, someone who's harmed them and has done, done evil to them, someone who's enslaved them and they run to you, you welcome them in. And that's, again, a picture of what you and I ought to be doing today because we're either servants of God or we're slaves to the enemy. And those who do not know God, we need to be a refuge in a place where they can see and know the love of Almighty God. We're also not to profit from the misfortune of others. And as we saw last week, we need to be people of our word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So this week, we're going to continue looking at some real practical things that he's telling the children of Israel when you go into the land of promise. Remember again, they didn't have a police force. They didn't have you know, a bunch of laws. So he said, when you go in, these are going to be the laws. And most of them are very practical and I want you to learn from them that you might represent me, that you might keep harm from coming into the camp. And these are things that are very applicable for every one of us. So we're going to continue to look at how God wants us to relate to one another from our closest relationships in marriage, that's the first thing we're going to look at, to people we haven't even met. How do we treat the poor? How do we treat people that are hurting? How do we treat people that, again, maybe even in our mind are our enemies? All those things we'll be looking at tonight. So I titled the message, Blessed are the Merciful. What is mercy? It's been, it's been defined as not being given what we deserve. Praise God for that. Amen. I'm glad I'm not being given what I... Don't ever demand what you deserve. Don't demand your rights. Don't demand what you deserve. You don't want that. Amen. I don't deserve that. Really? What would, you, would you like what you deserve? Because I don't want it. Amen. What I want is mercy. What I want is experience God's grace. The character of mercy is demonstrated most, most clearly by these qualities. Compassion, forbearance or patience, and forgiveness. Those are qualities of mercy. Those are qualities God has towards us. Is He compassionate towards us? Absolutely. Is He patient with us? Without a doubt. And is He a God who forgives us even though we don't deserve it? No doubt about it. And for there to be mercy, it must come from someone who's in a position of authority or someone, in your case, who is indebted to you. You show them mercy. They're indebted to you. They can repay you in no way. There's no way they can. You're not just doing it to get something back. That's mercy. And that's what our God has, has given to us, displayed to us. And that's what God desires that you and I would show one another. So God has shown that mercy by not giving us what we deserve, by giving, showing us compassion, by Again, even though we're under his authority, eternally in his debt, and there's no way we can pay him back, he still loves us. In Matthew 5, Jesus said this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. You want mercy in your life? Be merciful to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As God has been merciful to us, may we be merciful to one another. So, blessed are the merciful. We're going to see first within the institution of marriage. Then we're going to see how we're to treat those who are indebted to us. Then how to deal with sin within the camp, or in this case, within the body of Christ. How to treat those who work for you, that we are not to pervert justice. And then lastly, God's provision for the poor. So blessed are the merciful. Let's first look at the institution of marriage. Verse 1. 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now, you need to understand that divorce and marriage was very controversial from this time, and it was very controversial all the way up into Jesus' day. You guys remember, they even brought people to Jesus, and they, they questioned him about divorce. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And there were two schools of thought that were going around Israel in the days of Jesus. And I believe, again, even today we see some of this. There were the very liberal thinkers, headed by a rabbi by the name of Hallel. He was a scholar and a thinker, and he taught that uncleanness in marriage was anything that caused the husband to look down upon his wife. So she burned the toast, uncleanness. Salted the eggs too much, uncleanness. He even taught that if you find a woman cleaner than your wife, then she's unclean. So you could go, she's cleaner than you, I'm taking her, you're out, right? And this was, and all you had to do is look at your wife and say, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, get out of here. And brutal. Now, that was a very liberal thought in those days. So this verse, again, looking at this verse, it makes it very clear that there's something more to it. But they said uncleanness was anything that caused the husband to look at his own wife and see her in a, a light in his own eyes as being unclean. He'd just say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. He'd sign a piece of paper, that was it, and he'd send her on her way. Now, there was another camp, and praise God for that. And it was Shammai was the leader, and he said that basically that Hillel was out of his mind. And he said I, uncleanness was only immorality. And even then, it was never God's highest for there to be divorce. You know what? I believe that today. I believe it's never God's highest to be divorced. Now, do I believe there are biblical reasons for divorce? Yes. Do I believe? Now, by the way, you've heard me say this before. I will never counsel anybody to get a divorce. Ever. I never have, and I never will. Now, at the same time, I'm not going to blast somebody who gets one because they have biblical reasons for divorce either. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm not going to stand before Almighty God telling somebody to split up a marriage. I'm not going to do that. That's because, again, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Amen? And so, in this case, he believed it was only uncleanness. Not burning the toast. Right? And the word uncleanness there means nakedness, nudity, shame, or indecency. So you look at the root meaning of the word, obviously that's not burning the toast or salting the eggs. What this is, is it's saying if you've defiled the physical relationship in marriage, there are three biblical reasons why a marriage can come to an end. One, adultery. Two, abandonment. Three, death. That's it. Those are the three. Now, some people really struggle with that. But you want to know something? The Hebrew word for divorce and it is, means a cutting away, or it's basically the same word you would use if you amputated a limb from your body. That's what the word divorce is in Hebrew. And you know what? Those of you who are here and have been divorced, you can testify to that. You can say it's like cutting away. It's, it, it's almost like a death in some cases. It's brutal. And God says he wants nothing. Now, you got to understand that there's those that the liberal thought of, hey, you know what, I'll try this marriage thing. If it doesn't work out, I'll just get me another one. I'll just cut bait and go get another one. Oh, she burned the tide. Just give me any reason. All I need is any reason. Jesus later said this, talking about passages on divorce, including this one. He said, Moses gave you 
that rule because of the hardness of your hearts. God's desire was never for divorce. Jesus properly defined uncleanness. He said in Matthew 19:9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So if somebody gets divorced for any other reason and then marries somebody else, they're an adulterer. Now, I want to say this right now because I know some of you are in your seat going, oh no. I got divorced for another reason and then I got remarried. Does that mean I'm an adulterer? Well, as we're going to see as we continue on through the text, God is also a forgiving God. And divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And if you're married today to somebody, then that's God's highest for you to remain in that marriage. And, you're to, and we're, as we're going to see, you're not to break that marriage up and amputate another limb and go back to the first person and try to restore it. If you've gotten married again, then this is where God wants you to be. If you've gotten married for the wrong, divorced for the wrong reasons, ask God to forgive you, and He will. Now, other people will be on the other extreme and say, well, wait a minute then, if that's the case, why can't I just get divorced and then pray about it later and ask for forgiveness and then be married to the person I want to be married to? Because you're still going to go through the death. You're still going to go through the cutting away. You're still going to go through all the consequences that come with divorce. It is never God's highest. And again, I know some people think I'm radical in that perspective, but I think that's the biblical perspective. And it's not my opinion is irrelevant. What does the Bible say? And Jesus said, except for sexual immorality, well, I'll go with Jesus. How about you? Amen? I'll go with him as opposed to the liberal train of thought going on in the world today. I also want to say this before I move on. I truly also believe that things that happened before you were a Christian, you may have been married several times, you get saved, you're a new creation in Christ. I believe you're clean from that point forward. I absolutely believe that. Because old things have passed away and all things have become new. Amen? And you are a new creation in Christ. And I do believe that that person can then, again, having gone back to maybe that previous marriage, there's no way for restoration. The person doesn't want you to go forward. And I believe that person can be married. Because, again, all this was done outside of Christ. So, God's design for marriage is very clear. And it's so important that sexual sin, this uncleanness, was not to be taken lightly. And... Although a man or a woman could divorce their spouse for sexual immorality, they were not obligated to do so. He said, only because of the hardness of your hearts. It was one hard heart that went out and committed adultery, and it's the other hard heart that won't forgive the one who's, who's seeking forgiveness. Amen? Now, if the person's seeking forgiveness, I absolutely believe you should forgive them. Pastor Dave, you don't understand. Again, what does the Bible say? The Bible is the authority. Amen? And that's what we stand on, the word of God, not the opinions of men. Now, those hard hearts would break up a marriage, and again, if there hadn't been that hard heart, there would have been either forgiveness, or there never would have been adultery to begin with. So, what if my husband or wife yells at me all the time? Guy's a jerk. You don't understand what I'm going through at home. You you do not have grounds for divorce because your husband's a jerk, or your wife's a jerk. Amen? That was weak. Amen? I know it's not easy, right? But my wife, you don't understand. She's so, uh, pray for her. Be a godly example to her. But my husband, he doesn't even provide for the, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He's not the spiritual, you pray for him, you be a godly example to him. Amen? That's God's highest. Don't bail out, work it out. Don't give up, don't quit. All right, God's here. He's still faithful. All right, Lord, you show me. 
And you go the extra mile. You know, I'd rather stand before God having done everything possible than stand before God having quit when things got tough. Divorce, again, is not the unpardonable sin, but its consequences are heavy, and we are not to take it lightly. You're going through marital trouble right now? Don't run from your spouse. Come into the office and have biblical counsel with one of the pastors. It doesn't cost anything. We'll take you to God's word. We'll pray for you. If your spouse won't do it, let us know. We'll pray for you anyway. Can God transform anybody's life? Absolutely. And so God's heart is in the area of marriage. Now, this is a a unique situation because look what happens here. He writes her a certificate of divorce. He puts it in her hand. He sends her out of the house, verse 2. And when she is departed from his house and goes, and she becomes another man's wife. So now she gets remarried. Her husband got rid of her. He sent her packing because of uncleanness. In this case, it could have been for burning the toast. We don't even know. In his mind, he could have said, okay, you're out of here. And he sends her away. Look at verse 3. If the latter husband detests her, this poor woman, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she's been defiled. Now why would God say that? Doesn't it seem like it would only be good for that first marriage to be put back together again? You know what God's doing here? He's making it very clear to these men or women that when you divorce somebody, there's a permanence to it. And it's not to be taken lightly. You're not to be sending her off packing to another guy for a while, and then she decides after a while she wants to come back, and she comes back. That's not marriage. That's basically wife swapping, right? Go try it with him for a while. It doesn't work out. And you know what else it would do? It would make that second marriage more solid because that woman would know she can't just run. Well, you know what? This, I like the first guy better. This guy's really, you know, a drag. I'm going back. He had nicer stuff. I'm going back home. I'm going, no, you can't. According to this, it's an abomination. No, you're married to him now. The amputation's taken place, and you remain with him. Now, make a, a, a clear note here. He's not talking about somebody who's remained unmarried. I believe that there's been a divorce and they both remain unmarried, that God's highest can still be restoration. You know, we had a guy in Lancaster, this story still blows my mind. He was our postman. And he used to come by the, post, he used to come by the church office every day, and the, other past, the senior pastor would talk to him about the Lord all the time, and if I was in the office, we talked to him about the Lord. And to make a long story short, after about three years of delivering our mail, he gave his life to the Lord. The postman, you got to love it, right? Divine appointment, right? He'd, he'd given our, our route, came every day. And what was great about it was, his name was Frank, is that when Frank rededicated his life to the Lord, we found out, or got saved, we found out his wife was a Christian, and they'd been divorced for 12 years. They had four children who were now all getting to be older, and she was a born and she said, I'm not getting remarried, I'm going to keep praying for my husband, I'm going to pray that he gets saved, and when he does, we'll get remarried. And all her friends thought she was outside of her mind. And you know what happened about six months after Frank got saved? They got remarried. And they started coming to our church. And their kids were involved in our youth group. And God did great and awesome things. And before you knew it, they had a home Bible study in their house. And Frank was teaching it. Now, can our God do anything? So we need to believe, again, in that case, she had not been remarried. That hadn't been, you know, so there was still that opportunity to bring this back together. I do believe once that other person has been remarried, time to move on. It's biblical. And again, it cements that next relationship. It was an abomination, it says, if he takes her back. 
Because again, we're not supposed to pretend like we're going steady in eighth grade. Go with him for a while, then come back with me and then go with him. No. God says, no, this is permanent. Amen? And you know what's sad? It's too many people don't realize it's permanent until it's already been made permanent. Amen? Too many people are just, hey, well, I'll just try it out. No, there's no trying it out. This is a lifetime commitment. Amen? You know what? I love this story in the Bible because you've heard me say it many times. You know I've got a heart for marriage big time. God, you know God talks more about marriage in the Bible than he does even the church? He talks more about marriage than he does the church. You destroy marriages, you can destroy the church. The church is built on marriage. And so we see here that a lack of godly, a godly view in our country today has really destroyed the society as a whole. Because God elevates marriage, God has a plan for marriage, and when you attack marriage, there are a lot of consequences. It's led to broken homes, undisciplined children. You know, I, my sons are in Little League. You would be amazed at how some kids talk to their parents. And I'm like, whoa, I'll swat them. Can I swat them? I'll do it. <laughs> out of control. But then I find out quickly, mom and dad have been divorced a long time, and step, you know, this whole thing's going on, and you got a nine-year-old kid literally flipping his parents off from the mound. And I'm like, oh, give me the board. I'll go do it right now. Because you know what? They need to be disciplined. What has happened? What does divorce do? It destroys the children. And we see it going on. Now, guess what? You want to pervert marriage even more? Let's just say that marriage can be between any two people. Two guys, that's fine. Two women, that's fine. Before you know it, we're going to have a law for polygamous marriage. You can have three wives and four husbands, and they're all married to each other, and, and we think that's out of control, but is it any very far away from where we are now? And that's what the world does. It's attacking marriage, and we need to stand for the sanctity of marriage. It's one man with one woman for a lifetime, period. That's God's plan. But again, if you've been divorced, it's not the impartable sin. God has forgiven you if you've asked his forgiveness. And the person you're married to now, God can sanctify that marriage and use it for his glory. Amen? So I want you to know, if you, if you haven't gone through a divorce, don't. And if you have, God can forgive you and will if you ask him. All right? So we see here that God had a real clear plan for marriage. So it's an abomination. If you go out and you come back, that's not going to be happening. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. All this stuff that's happening with the sanctity of marriage, it's brought sin upon our land. And he said if it happens there, it'll bring sin upon the land. You guys, be clear about what marriage is. God created it. Remember this. When God created marriage, he brought the woman to Adam. Caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam and he brought him his wife. He didn't hand him a six-pack and send him off to the singles bar. Amen? He didn't hand him a bow and arrow and say, go hunt her down. Right? He didn't do that. He caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam, and he brought him his wife. We don't have to strive to find the person God has for us. We don't have to knock walls down. We don't have to close the deal. We don't have to compete with somebody else. If it's the person God has for you, God will take care of it. And again, if you're here and you're single, remember it was God that brought the woman to the man. And you wait for the person God has for you. Wasn't alcohol, wasn't lust, wasn't closing the deal, it was the Lord. And you know what? When God does it, it's an awesome thing. Amen? When God just brings the person right to you, man, praise God. 
Pursue God, allow him to bring you your spouse in his perfect time. If you're here and you're married, you're married and you're struggling, let not your heart be hardened. Don't let your heart be hardened. If your spouse has broken your vows, be merciful, be compassionate, and be forgiving if they're seeking it. If you're doing well in your marriage, keep Christ at the center and don't become complacent about your walk with God. Amen? You keep pursuing the Lord in your marriage. You keep putting Him first in your marriage. Again, this is so key. If you've been divorced for biblical reasons, wait for God to bring you a spouse. Pursue Him, not them. Amen? Pursue the Lord and let Him take care of the details. No biblical grounds for divorce and the person's not remarried. Seek restoration if possible. That's radical, Pastor Dave. Well, it's biblical. If, you know what? And if not, know that you can be forgiven. He's a forgiving and a gracious God. So, he says this marriage thing needs to be taken serious. And if not, it will bring pollution to the land. Verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, newlyweds were not to go to war or be charged with any state business for a year. His wife and his home were to be his priority and his number one ministry. Now, that's true for every husband in this room. Your number one ministry is your marriage and your wife. Your number one ministry, your children if you have them. That's, that comes first. Don't put golf, hobbies, other friendships ahead of your bride and your children. Don't do that. It's okay to go play golf, of course. But if you play so much that your wife starts to forget your name, it's not good. Amen? Honor her. Make her the priority. Now look what it says here. He shall not go out to war. He shall not go out. The word there in the original language means to go out, to exit, to be separated. So what he's really talking about here is don't do whatever is going to separate you from your bride. Especially in that first year of marriage. You make that the priority. And you know what? I'm going to confess to you guys and be real transparent with you. I got married when I was 21 years old. I've been married 20 years now. My wife's in Mexico on a missions trip right now with my son. From uh, All the seventh graders from Baymont are down there. Be praying for them. I got married at 21. We were, and early on, we were so broke we couldn't pay attention, I used to say. We had no money. And so I got a job in sales because my dad told me I was always somebody who could communicate well. So I went out and got a job in sales, and God blessed it, but you know what happened? My job had me traveling a lot. And during the first part of our marriage, I was sometimes gone Monday through Friday and only home on the weekends. I wish somebody had taught me this chapter 20 years ago, because the first year of our marriage was very difficult, because I thought I was being a great husband, and I was actually neglecting the very thing that would have made me a great husband. I was not being a great husband. I was being a lousy husband. I kept saying, well, yeah, but the, the bills are paid. And the food's on the table. And, you know, right? Isn't that what a good husband does? No, you know what a good husband does? He loves his wife. What a good husband does is he honors his wife. He lays down his life for his wife. He's a spiritual leader in his home. He ministers to her. And we had a lot of difficulty that first year because I was a knucklehead. I didn't get it. And finally, the Lord said, go minister to your wife. She's the priority. Court your wife all your life, my dad used to say. I want to encourage you. That's great advice. You know, and again, it's not, it's not the macho thing to prove, you know, how I'm making the money, I'm doing this. You know what? That's not what it is at all. And again, 
I don't believe here that it says that first year not to go out to war. I don't, mean this, I don't believe this means that you can't be involved in ministry for that entire year. But I believe you shouldn't be involved in anything that's being separating you from your wife and taking you away from her or your husband for great lengths of time. That's not what God wants. God wants you guys to make that the priority. Hey, do ministry together. Amen. Do ministry together. That's great. That's wonderful. Now look what it says here. And it says, bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Another thing my dad always says, a happy wife is a happy life. <laughs> Amen to that. A husband cannot make his wife happy without bringing happiness into his own life. And so too, he cannot bring misery into the life of his spouse without bringing misery into his own life as well. A happy wife is the foundation for a happy home. A bitter or contentious wife makes a miserable home. Listen to the Bible. In Proverbs 27, it says, A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. It says in Proverbs 21, Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21, 19 says, Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Now, this doesn't mean just give her whatever she wants so she'll be happy. Okay, ladies? You heard Pastor Dave, happy wife, happy life. I'm thinking four carrots on this hand, real happy. Right? Big ring, right? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Again, it's being a godly husband. It's taking the spiritual lead. It's loving and serving and laying down your life for your wife. It's being merciful toward her. It's being kind. It's being loving. It's being compassionate. You know what? I will freely admit to you, I've fallen short in this area. You know, I continue to learn more every day what it means to be a godly husband. I'm 20 years in. Maybe in another 20, I'll have it figured out. Kind of. You know what I mean? I'm still growing in that. But you know what? What I'm learning is I need to be my wife's number one biggest encourager, period. No matter what. I need to not just be her best friend, but her encouragement. The one that she can always turn to no matter what, that's always on her side, that loves her unconditionally, that always shows her compassion. And you know what? She, and, and she needs to be that for me. And you know what? That's what agape love is. It's loving someone outside of yourself more than yourself. And when you each have agape love for each other, man, marriage is awesome. But if it's all about me in marriage, and the other person's all about me, it's going to be a disaster. And so we see here that he's saying very clearly, marriage is the priority. You're going into the land, I don't care if war's going on around you. You don't leave your wife, you stay with her. You minister to her. You care for her. You love on her. Next thing, look what it says here in verse 6. No man shall take, now he just shifts gears all over the place. Now watch this. He's just writing laws down. Here we go. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in a pledge. So first he talks about marriage, being merciful in marriage, being kind in marriage, being compassionate in marriage, being loving towards one another, not being hard-hearted, making marriage the priority. And now he starts talking about when somebody owes you money, when somebody, again, relating to another person, right? Somebody owes you something, he says, don't take their millstone from them. Now what does that mean? Well, the millstone for many of them was their way of making a living. And so... Remember from last week, if they loaned money, they were not to charge interest. Do you remember that? Not to charge interest. They're just loaning the money. Now, they would take a pledge, which is some wisdom like collateral. And the collateral would just be to say, hey, I'll hold on to this. Just as, you know, collateral till you do pay me back. I'm not going to charge you any interest. 
I'm not trying to, you know, get over on you or make money when you're down. But I'll hold, I'll hold this while I'm waiting for you to pay me back and there'll be incentive for you to pay me back. But what he's saying here is, don't take the very means of their, of their lifestyle away from them or they won't be able to survive. So if a plumber owes you money, don't take his truck and his tools, his collateral. That's what this means. You know, take his camera and his motorcycle if you want, but don't take his truck and his tools or he'll never be able to pay you back. This is very simple, right? But again, duh, right? Don't take his tools. Want the guy to pay me back, he's probably going to have to work, right? But these are, again, God makes it real clear because he knew going into the land there'd be those who would be vindictive. There'd be those who, well, you owe me money, so now I'm going to lord it over you. Now I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to want to know where you spend every dime. I want to know where you go all the time. How did you afford that? You still owe me money. And he says, no, you don't treat him that way. You treat him with mercy and kindness and compassion, those who are indebted to you. Don't lord it over them. Don't take advantage of them, those who are in a time of need. Now he switches gears here and talks about how to deal with sin in the camp. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die, and you shall put, him away, put the evil away from among you. Any of you guys struggling with this verse? Any of you guys struggling with kidnapping? Is that a problem for you? Okay, you might think, what has this got to do with me? But you need to understand something. In those days, it was a very frequent occurrence because what they would do is they would grab people not for ransom, but then they would sell them into slavery. That's exactly what happened to Joseph. Right? His own brothers were going to kill him, and they said, hey, man, there's a band, of they're coming by, and let's sell them, and then they end up selling them into slavery in Egypt. Remember that? And so what he's saying here is, don't, for us, for you and I today, kidnapping may not be an issue, but what he's talking about is showing mercy and grace towards others, showing love towards others, and be a person who does not view other people as a way of bringing riches into your life. There are people that are like that. They view people simply as assets. You know, I can hang out with that person, and that would really help me get to my goal if I take advantage of that person. And that's exactly what this is happening. We'll grab that person, we'll sell them into slavery, it'll benefit me. I don't care about the person, I care about how it benefits me. As Christians, we should never have that kind of relationship. Where we don't care about the person, all we're looking for is how it benefits me. Can I tell you something, some of the hardest relationships for me to stay in? Friendships I have, I've had for many years, some of them have fizzled out in the last few years, is where you're, with, you're hanging out with people who all they want to do is take, 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 take. And if you don't give enough, then they want to back away from you. And our flesh wants to say after a while, you know what, okay, fine. Go. You know what I mean? But there are people like that who view people as, what have you done for me? What can you do for me? How can you minister to me? Oh, you're not doing anything for me? I'm done with you. You know what, we ought to be looking at everybody, how can I minister to them? Not what can you do for me, but what can I do for you? How can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I minister to you? Don't look at friendships and what's in it for me. How can they bless me? But again, how can I love on them? We need to show that mercy, which will, again, transform their lives and touch their hearts. And look what it says there. To put the evil away from among you. The kidnapper, what had to happen to him? They had to die. Now wait a minute, Pastor Dave, aren't we talking about mercy tonight? The kidnapper has to die. Where's the mercy? You know where the mercy is? The mercy is for all the victims of the kidnapper. The, the mercy is for the pollution it would bring into the children of Israel if they allowed this to continue on. People say it's not, the death penalty is not merciful. Well, God, the, the word of God, and you can debate me if you want to, and that's okay. 
The Word of God very clearly teaches that the death penalty is a deterrent. So I'm going with the Bible. Again, amen? And if it was carried out like it's supposed to be, it would be a deterrent. So sin has consequences. And so he's saying the same thing here. If somebody kid, Now, if you find out the kidnappers are being put to death, that might put a halt to kidnapping. And at the same time, it's merciful towards those who are the victims. It applies, again, to viewing another person as simply a means of enriching your life. It's that Aaron's self-centered love to the max. What can I get from them? Look next at leprosy. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priest and the Levites shall teach you, just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Those of you who are here when we went through Leviticus, you guys remember in Leviticus 13 and 14, it was very clear what they did when they thought someone had leprosy. They would bring them before the priest and they would examine them. And then if they thought something might be leprosy, they would set them aside and watch them for a period of time to see if it grew. And if it did, then they would isolate them outside of the camp and leave them there till they either were healed or died. And guess what? Pretty much all of them died, right? Very few were ever healed of leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible is a type of sin. And so he's saying here that the, that leprosy is brought for inspection before the priest. And the priest examines it. And the priest is the only one who can say whether or not it's been cleansed. Well, for you and I, our leprosy was brought before the great high priest. And he not only examined us, but he cleansed us from it. And praise God that it's been removed. But in this case, he's saying don't allow this leprosy to, to go unchecked because you know what happens? If it goes unchecked, what's going to happen to the whole, whole camp? They're all going to get it and they're all going to die. And so leprosy, like sin, starts small, it spreads, and undealt with, it produces death. You might say, some of people could say, well, that leprosy doesn't impact me. Well, again, if it's not dealt with, it will at some point. The same is true in the body of Christ. If there are those who are just living rebellious lives outside of God's will, they refuse to repent, they just keep living in it, if it goes undealt with, it will impact the entire body. It absolutely will. We go to them, not judgmentally, but we go to them in love, not for condemnation, but for restoration. Amen? But there needs to be more of that. And again, always do it in love. Never go pointing fingers. And we, you know, we don't all have to be the sin inspector like I talked about on Sunday. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But at the same time, Again, they had to identify the sin and isolate it and set it outside of the camp to keep it from spreading. What does the Lord tell us to do with those who are in rebellious and in sin and won't repent? It says to deliver them up to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. That means so that they would go away from the church and realize, you know what, I need to get right with God. I'm out of fellowship now. And the destruction of their flesh to bring them back and restore them to the Lord. That's God's highest. The same was true as they set them outside of the camp. So again, those areas must not go unchecked. Verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. In Numbers chapter 12, those of you who are here. Miriam is the sister of whom? Moses. And do you remember what happened to her? She got jealous. Moses is leading the children of Israel. I think Moses would have given the job away probably. Three million whiners, you want it? Yeah, go ahead, right? But you know, he had three million whiners and, and now his own sister says, you know what, Moses, her, her and her brother Aaron, I, we've had enough of you. It's our turn. We're of the same tribe you are. Let us be in charge. And what did God do? He struck her with leprosy. And when she was struck with leprosy, again, that sin couldn't be overlooked, her sin of doing what she did to her own brother. And so what did God do? God struck her with leprosy, and she was set outside of the camp for seven days. And what I love about this is what did Moses do? 
He prayed for his sister. She tried to overthrow him and take his position. She got leprosy, and he went to the Lord and interceded on her behalf. Is that not a type or a picture of Christ or what? And she went and interceded on his behalf, on her behalf, and what happened? She was healed. She still had seven days outside of the camp. Her sin still had consequences, but she was brought back into the camp. Again, the same thing we ought to do when someone's struggling in their walk with the Lord. We should go intercede on their behalf and go to the Lord for them. Now look, watch the next portion. It talks about being respectful of your brother, the proper treatment of those who are indebted to you. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man of whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. Now what is this talking about? You do, you do loan it to somebody, and he promises to give you some collateral. And after a, a short amount of time, you haven't got any collateral yet, so you go busting into his house and tearing through his house, finding something that you find acceptable for collateral. Is that the way we're supposed to treat each other? Absolutely not. But again, I've seen money do this to people. I've seen where people have money issues with each other, and before you know it, they, again, like I said before, they start lording it over each other. The one person starts, you know, acting like everything in the other person's house belongs to them because they owe them some money. Often when someone has lent money, they begin to act as if they, again, own the other person and all his belongings, and they question every dime that's being spent, and they begin to treat the person with little or no respect, sometimes even with contempt. Can I tell you my own personal philosophy on loaning people money? If I am not willing to give it to them, I shouldn't loan it to them. Because in my mind, I just, if I loan it to them, it's, it's a gift. Here. It's God's money anyway. Here, take it. Now, if they choose to pay me back, fine. But if not, fine. Because it's a gift as far as I'm concerned. And you can all come up and ask me for loans after church, all right? I don't have any money, but you can ask me anyway. <laughs> got four kids and a wife, you know, I ain't got nothing left. But the point is that that ought to be our heart with our brother. We should not elevate money over our brother, amen? We should not make the things of this world that aren't going to last more important than the things that are. Be respectful. Don't treat them different from those who have lent you nothing. You know, one thing, that, one of the things that made me do this, back when I was working and I was in Southern California, I had a really good job, and, and there were those who would be struggling, and some people would ask for money. And there were people that owed me money. They would stop coming to church because they were afraid they were going to see me. And they felt bad because they hadn't paid me back. And I started to realize, wait a minute, that's just wrong. And I remember calling two different guys on the phone. I called them home and said, bro, it's a gift. Forget it. What do you mean? Just forget it. No, I'm going to pay. No, forget it. But I expect to see you at church on Sunday. I know that's why you didn't come. Well, yeah, I felt kind of awkward because, you know, we, it's been a month and we haven't paid you back. You know what? It's God's money. Here, I'll make you a deal. If you feel led to pay it back, tithe it. Give it to the Lord. I won't know if you did or didn't. Just show up at church. Because don't allow, again, the temporal things of this world to get in the way of that which is eternal. And don't treat people different. So we need to be very careful to not fall into these traps of men. Now, who's he telling this to? The children of Israel. They're getting ready to go into the land of promise. He knows the temptation that's going to come. They went from being slaves to being blessed. And yet, while they're blessed, they're still going to start getting greedy. And God knew that. And we need to be careful, because the same is true for us. Verse 12 and 13. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall not in any case return the pledge to him again. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. You shall not keep his pledge overnight. For a really poor guy, you know what his pledge might be? His cloak. You know what a cloak was? It was like a coat, but it was also something you slept in. 
It's like your blanket. Can you imagine you got a poor guy, here you are with a bunch of stuff, you, 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 know, you give him some money for food or whatever it might be, and now all of a sudden you take his cloak as a, you know, and now at night he's, you, can't, you know, right? He says, don't do that. Don't let the sun go down. Give him his cloak back that he may bless you, that he may glorify God. And again, the garment was used for warmth, and the collateral was incentive to repay, not to inflict suffering. Amen? It was an incentive to pay back, not to inflict suffering. Show the man mercy, and he will bless you. It will be righteousness to you before the Lord. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen? If you show mercy to others, then God's going to bless. Just be merciful. Let him have it. It's okay. Again, I know that's hard, but I worked hard for it. No, God gave it to you. Amen? When we get that perspective, we'll let go of things. We won't hold on so tightly. Now watch about, what about the way we treat people that work for us? You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy whether one of your brethren or of the aliens who is in the land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor, and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. Now, God commands that while we may be in a position of authority, we are to treat our employees fairly and kindly. Now, you might say, I don't have any employees. I believe this is talking about the babysitter that comes over to your house. The person that mows your lawn, if you have somebody who does that. Somebody who fixes this or fixes that. Somebody comes into your home. And he's saying here, you treat them with fairness. Why? That God might be glorified. Now, can I tell you that I've heard this, and I know you have too, that some people say, I hate working with Christians because they always rip you off. You ever heard that before? I have. I've heard people say, I won't call a yellow page ad that has a Christian fish in it because they always, you know, take advantage of you. I'm like, that hurts. And this verse right here comes to mind. You know what? I'll be honest with you. If somebody, when my kids were younger, if somebody babysit for my kids, I paid them double what I thought was fair. You know why? I want them walking out going, wow, man, what a blessing working for that guy. You know what I mean? I want them. You know, if somebody came over to my house, the Bible says a labor is worthy of his hire. Amen. And so, you know, I pay them more than I thought it was fair. Why? Because I want God to be glorified. They knew I was a Christian. And you know what it says here, whether the person is an alien or a brother, and I'll tell you what, this is another area where sometimes we think because someone is a brother in Christ that he should like pay only, we should only pay him half, right? Well, you're a brother in Christ, man, you know, just do it for half, right? And put that onus on somebody. You know what? He's a brother in Christ, pay him double, amen? Don't ask for it in half, pay him double. Bless him extra, because you know what? It's all God's money anyway, Amen? And the point here is, don't take advantage of your brother. Don't allow the scrapping over temporal stuff again to, to cause harm to that which is eternal. You shall not oppress a hired servant by paying, you know what, by not paying him in a timely manner, by having him in a work situation that is unsafe or, or brutal, whether one of your brethren or not. Don't take advantage of those you don't know, and, and don't take advantage of your brother in Christ. The way you treat those who work for you will either produce a good or bad testimony for the Lord. Period. People will either be blessed having done business with you, or they won't, or it'll be a bad testimony to the God you say that you serve. And I tell you, I've heard it so many times, it breaks my heart. May it never be said of us, amen? Treat them kindly, treat them fairly. Pay what you promised when you promised to pay it. You know, somebody comes over and does a bunch of work for you. Hey, man, you know, I'm a little light right now, and I think I could pay in about six weeks. And I know that's common standard practice amongst 
contractors and subcontractors and stuff like that. You know what? I don't think it should be with Christian contractors. Pastor Dave, you don't understand. No, yes, I do. I understand the Bible says. Pay him when you said you're going to pay him. Amen? Pay him. You owe it? Pay him. Why? Because God is faithful and God's name should not be mocked because we're faithless. Because we're disobedient to his word. When we say we're going to pay, so it says at the end of the day, the guy comes to get his wages, right? He's poor in this case. And he needs the money to go feed his family. And you go, I'll pay it. I'll get you next week. And what does it say in the text? He'll curse you. The name of God will be harmed. Oh, man, that dog, he told me, he was, you know, man. And then they walk away murmuring under their breath, and the name of the Lord is being harmed. You know what? Let me be harmed, not the name of the Lord be harmed. Let your yes be yes even to your own harm, even if it costs you more than you think it should. Don't withhold what is due. A laborer is worthy of his hire. Don't blow your testimony over temporal dollars. Don't blow your testimony over that which will not last. Treat them well. Pay them well that God might be glorified. Amen? I want to encourage you. It's such a simple thing. But it makes all the difference in the world. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're almost done. Verse 16 through 18. Not, we're not to pervert justice. Look what it says. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall, not be, put, a person shall be put to death for his own sin. You're not to assign the punishment to the wrong person or to deal more harshly with the strangers. We're going to see in the next few verses. Each shall bear his own sin. A person shall not be put to death for the sins of another. Why? Because one man can't pay for another man's sin. Can't. Because every man needs his sin paid for. So you can't pay for another man's sin because you're a sinner yourself in desperate need of your own sin being paid for. We should not blame our parents or our children for our sinful behavior. Look what it says here. Don't put the children to death for the father and don't put the father to death for the children. And yet too often people do that. The reason I'm this way, it's all my parents' fault. Now, I want to say this. Make it real clear. Certainly there's some home environments that are horrible. There's no doubt that's true. And, and, and no doubt some environments, hey, I grew up in a Christian home with a pastor for a dad, and I'm blessed. Some people grew up in homes with parents that were very abusive and things like that. But I want to say this. Every family is sinful. And if we start pointing at our, our parents and pointing at our our children, and say, that's the reason I'm a sinner, you've missed it. Because again, God is faithful. And if you, if you have an earthly dad that's a, that's a mess, you can have a heavenly father that's not. Amen? And he can be a, a, the dad to you that you need. He can be the one that can minister to your heart. And you know, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, mom and dad aren't standing next to us. If you don't know God, you're not going to be able to point at anybody else. It was that person. No, it's you. What have you done with Jesus? And he says here, that person has to pay the debt for their own sin. Now, what's awesome about this is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Amen? And Jesus came, the Son of God, came and paid the price for you and I. That we can be sons, not the son, but sons and daughters of God. Amen? We can be adopted into the family because Jesus Christ paid the price for us. Praise God. And, but at the same time, again, it's important. And I, I want to say this to parents, too. If you're a parent and you have wayward children, it's not always a result of bad parenting. It's a result often of rebellious children. Amen? Now, we can have an impact on it. It can be us. But 
you can raise your kids to love God. You can pray for them. You can teach them the word. You can be a spiritual leader in your home and your kids can still rebel. Why? Because they have free will. Now, we need to pray for them. We need to love on them. But the enemy will jump all over you. See, if you'd done this different, your kids wouldn't be this way. Well, again, I want to make it real clear that we need to be a reflection of Christ to our kids. We need to show them the love and admonition of Almighty God. We need to exhibit His love in the way that we love each other in front of them. But you know what? At some point, they're going to make their own decision about the Lord. And you can't force them to do it. You can't. But you can keep praying for them. Verse 17 and 18. You shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God has redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Don't mistreat those who are defenseless. Don't look down on the stranger or the orphan. Do not abuse the widow. You know, some people, it's amazing to me, and it's true that you see these exposés all the time. You know there are people that target elderly to rip them off? Big time. Why? Because a lot of times elderly people have money, right? They've been, you know, living their whole life. Their house may be paid for, and they've got a retirement or whatever. And they will lie to them and cheat and steal from them. And they'll go after the orphans and the widows. You know, the Bible says pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. Amen? We're to minister to them, not take from them. And what he's saying here very clearly is that you're not to pervert justice because someone is a stranger. Because they're not of the children of Israel. You're not to do it to the fatherless, the orphan. You're not to take advantage of a widow. But instead, remember where you came from. Now, I love this because... We can get arrogant sometimes and self-righteous but because we think we've arrived. But we all need to remember where we came from. We all need to remember that we were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And it's only by the grace of God that we have been saved. Not of works that any man should boast. It's not what I did, it's what he did. Amen? And he alone should be glorified for the transforming work in my life. And I need to remember where I've come from. And I've been saved and praise God for that. And I should not glory in it. I should glorify him in it. And so he's saying very clearly here, remember where you came from. You know why? Because if you do, then you won't take advantage of the stranger. Because you know what? You used to be a stranger to me. But now you're a friend. That's what the Bible says, right? You used to call you stranger, now I call you friend. You know what? We used to be fatherless, fatherless, now we're his children. We used to be poor, but now we're rich in Christ. We used to be orphans. You know, we used to be those people. We're not anymore. And he's saying to them, remember where you came from and remember who you've become and you'll treat people differently. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. God has saved us. Our lives belong to him. We should not be arrogant about anything, only glorifying God in everything. Amen? Be merciful. As he has been merciful to us, may we be merciful to others and point them to Christ. Last section, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in your field, you shall not go back to get it. You shall be, it shall be for a stranger, the fatherless and the widow. The Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall... Now, they beat olive trees. In the, now, there's going to be a protest out front next week by the Santa Cruz. Isn't Earth Day? They beat olive trees. While you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger and the fatherless and the widow. This is God's welfare program for Israel. Here's what he said. 
I've blessed you. I've given you this land flowing with milk and honey. I'm, gonna, I'm the one that gave it to you. I saved you out of slavery, and now I've given you all that you have. And I've blessed you beyond what you can imagine. And it all really belongs to me, but I've blessed you. Now, when you go through and you reap the harvest in your field, don't make sure you take every single scrap for yourself. Leave something for somebody else. Everything that you have doesn't belong to you. Amen? Everything that you have doesn't belong to you. It all belongs to God. And what I love about this is it made the farmer or the vineyard owner be gracious and giving, but it also made sure that the fatherless and the widows and the orphans weren't lazy. Because what did they have to do to get the food? They had to go get it. Now it was there for them, but he didn't say wrap up a bunch of sheaves and go by their house and, you know, bake the bread and stick it in their mouth and make them chew it. He's not what he said. What did he say? He said, you know what, leave it there so they can come behind you and they can walk through and pick up plenty of food to survive on. God's welfare program, that's pretty sweet, isn't it? It's great. Why? Because there's generosity on one side and there's a willingness to work on the other side. And you know what, that's, I'll be honest with you, again, transparent, Pastor Day's opinion. I don't like it when a guy's holding up a sign saying, give me money for sitting here. I'll work for food. Liar. I've yet to have one work for me when I, when I have that sign. How about you? I used to offer him work all the time. You want to work? Really, I got some hedges to trim. Well, I didn't really think about, no, no, I didn't really want. It just looks good on the sign. You know what I mean? It makes you look like I'm not lazy. No. A man who does not work shall not what? Eat. Now, we should be kind and loving and gracious. We shouldn't look down upon them. But laziness is a sin. And I'm not going to prop up sinful behavior. The Lord didn't do it. Remember when manna came out of the sky, what did he make them do every day? They had to get up and go gather it. And he made them do it every day. He didn't say gather a month's worth and go lay around your tent. That's not what he said. He said get up every day, gather a day's worth. Anything more than a day's worth is going to rot. So only gather a day's worth. But every day get up and go get it. And you know what? Great example for us that we should be diligent and we should be not greedy, not get all you can, can all you get and spoil all the rest so nobody else can have any, right? Not, don't scourge every bit of land you have and take it all for yourself. But be willing, like as again, our focus as Christians, shouldn't just be getting all we can for our help, ourselves, but being concerned about the needs of others. Again, because not all that you have, not all that God has given you is for you. A lot of what God has given you is so that you can minister to others. All we have, again, belongs to God. And I love it because you would not have those who would be greedy, and you'd also have not those who would be lazy. The one who owned it wouldn't take it all for himself, and the one didn't have had to work. Lastly, verse, last verse, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. That's the second time he's reminded them. Why? Because he knew when they went into the land flowing of milk and honey, It'd be real easy to forget their past. It'd be real easy to forget what they've been saved from. May we never forget what God has done for us. Israel was never to forget they had been delivered from their poor and enslaved past. How blessed they would have been to have fields to glean from. You know, they would have loved to have fields to glean from when they were in Egypt. And he's saying, don't forget where you've come from. And so too, you and I must never forget what we've been delivered from. The future that you and I deserved. Our utter hopelessness and helplessness apart from Christ. God's incredible love and grace and mercy toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. What is mercy? 
It's God not giving us what we deserve. Aren't you glad he's a God of grace and a God of mercy? Should we not true be people of grace and people of mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these examples of just the mercy of God, the grace of God. And Lord, I pray from every institution we've talked about tonight, whether it be in our marriages, Lord, help us, Father God, to lay it in our lives one for another. Help us, Lord, to have marriages set apart unto you. Help us, Lord, not to pervert what marriage really is. Lord, I pray also for, for the men here to be the spiritual leader in their home, to make their wives the priority, to realize that it's a high calling and a great blessing to be a husband and a father. Lord, I pray that for the women as well, to be godly women, godly moms, set apart unto you. Lord, I pray that we would treat those around us the way that you would. Lord, that we would love them, be kind to them, be merciful. Father, I pray that we would not be demanding of others who may be indebted to us. But Lord, we would treat them with grace and kindness. Lord, I pray for those who might work for us, Lord, in any capacity. That Lord, they would be blessed having spent time with us because we'd be a reflection of you. They would walk away from any transaction with us glorifying your name and talking about how great our God is because they've seen you in the way that we do business. Lord, I pray also, Lord, that again, we would have that compassion for the orphans and the widows. That we would not take advantage of those who are hurting, but Lord, we'd reach out to them in love, minister to them the way you've called us to. Lord, I also pray lastly that we would take, keep the sin out of our camp. Lord, in our homes, in our church, in our marriages, Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight who's got hidden sin that's impacting their marriage, impacting their home, impacting their walk with you. That, Lord, they come with a confessing heart and make it right, even tonight. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your mercy. And as you've been merciful, merciful toward us, may we be merciful toward others. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.